0: And that's what I hope I've done. Now it's up to each reader to decide whether Blue Mobley is an important man of letters or a sellout, a champion of the voiceless or an elitist hypocrite, the conscience of America or an ungrateful traitor, and if his story is a parable of the rise and fall of a culture or a swan song to the book itself as a medium. Of course, we won't begin to scratch the surface of that reservoir of material tonight. That's what the book is for. For tonight's presentation, I'm going to give an overview of Blue's career with a focus on the creative process. Not so much the creative process that bursts forth from the artist like some kind of natural or supernatural phenomena, but how life creates the artist. How life influences an artist's creative output and vice versa. door opened or closed, one comment from a teacher, diagnosis from a doctor, encounter with a stranger, one situation leads to another, and a light without a plan or a map, and a life writes itself. And if you happen to be a writer, you can't help but write about the lives around you and the life of your times. You try to fill in the holes, connect the dots, make whole that which is broken, and make sense of that which seems senseless. And I think Blue Mobley makes a fascinating case study for this because the choices life made for him were as important as any choices he made in his work. For years, Blue claimed to have never written about himself, yet we discover him and the people he loves sluicing through all his books, however obliquely. I also think he's a fascinating case study because of how varied his career has been, starting out as a journalist, becoming an experimental novelist, book artist, college professor, accidental best-selling author, pop culture personality, and unindicted prisoner. So let's begin where Blue does in his telling at the Joan of Arc Junior High in Queens, New York, where he falls in love with the letterpress shop, a la Gutenberg, inadvertently learns the tenets of journalism working on the school newspaper, and composes his very first book titled the grandest art show in the world, a three-inch tall book about a magical experience he had one day with his manic depressive artist mother at a marshland in New Jersey, all 14 pages of which are reproduced in A Life in Books. Blue never knew his father, and his mother never told him who he was, but Blue's aunt Chloe, who had a few too many gin and tonics one night, told Blue that his father was a very famous man who was madly in love with his mother, but because of his fame and his having a family of his own, had to cut off the relationship. So Blue let his fantasies run wild in a series of books he called My Famous Fathers, bound in a bifurcated do dough do binding. On one side of each book, he described what each of his hypothetical famous fathers did to transform the world. The other side portrayed the kind of relationship that particular famous father might have had with Blue had he chosen to follow his passion with responsibility. Long story short, Blue double majored in journalism and art in college and got his first jobs as a beat reporter for a New York newspaper and then as a foreign correspondent reporting on wars in the Middle East, Latin America and the Caribbean. He quits before he's fired for non-objective reporting. He comes back to New York, gets a part-time teaching gig, and begins working on his first full-length novel, The Switch. One morning, a Zionist soldier from Tel Aviv awakes to find himself living the life of a Palestinian man from the West Bank. His nemesis has become him as well, at least for the day. A Bible-thumping pro-life activist is switched with a die-hard pro-choice feminist. A very gay man is switched with a very homophobic man. On this one day, switches like these occur all over the world. Narcissistic Planet Disorder is an oversized book about a planet that thought it was the center of the universe. Written several years before Ronald Reagan announced his Star Wars program, Narcissistic Planet Disorder was not only timely, it was prophetic. But it was difficult convincing stores to carry a book that stood 28 inches tall. Based on his neighbor and best friend, Samir Braxton, who refused to let Blue use his real name, The Book of Lies is a true fiction, narrated by a devout atheist and professed, professed liar who swears he's telling the truth and nothing but the truth, so help him God. Throughout this one-sentence, 365-page novel, Jeremy stands atop a 36-foot ladder in autumn painting the red trim of a red barn red. Looking out on the changing seasons in the year to come, as well as back on his checkered past. Blue wrote 38 feet one year after landing a full-time teaching job at a state college on Long Island. He replaced a popular professor who escaped the life Blue had just signed on to. That professor went back to the land to live in a shack with no plumbing and to paint houses. Blue fell in love with an avant-garde dancer named Akansha Baturjiji. Having been raised by a single mother, he knew nothing about married life and looked to his neighbors, Joey and Francis Jordan, for inspiration. Having sunk thousands of dollars into producing a bifurcated book that very few bookstores would carry, Blue produces a trifurcated book about a married couple from Haiti called Ménage à Trois, a man... A woman, her camera, based loosely on a couple he'd met when he was a reporter in Haiti. After the Bhopal Gas League disaster killed 3,000 people in a single day, including one of a closest cousins, Blue writes a novel called Boxland, which takes place in a land where the corporation has superseded all jurisdictions, including town, county, state, nation, and continent. Blue requests and receives a copy of his FBI file, whoops, which turns out to be a heftier dossier than he could have imagined, containing things about himself he didn't even know. For a while, Blue becomes a book artist and word art poet, which doesn't garner him the right creds with his colleagues in the literature department at the college. To increase his chances of getting tenure, Blue decides to go for a doctoral degree at a university without walls. The Phenomenology of Lint is a novel about a woman who grew up hand washing and air drying her family's clothes in a small village in Pakistan. She comes to the United States and becomes obsessed with those colorful patches of lint that get trapped in washer-dryers throughout the industrialized world. For her doctoral thesis at NYU, she compares laundry lint specimens with oral histories only to discover hidden truths and unexpected friendships. One time, After not seeing his mother for three months, Blue paid her a surprise visit at the Queensbridge apartment. She greeted him at the door, a shell of the woman he knew. Her mood seemed expansive, but her body was emaciated, almost like a concentration camp survivor. Her skin white as a ghost. It was obvious that she hadn't been taking her lithium. He stepped inside. Blue writes, As if the sight of my skeletal mother wasn't shocking enough, her living room and kitchen were covered with floor-to-ceiling drawings made directly onto the walls with pencil and ballpoint pen. Human figures of all sizes, Imaginary creatures, fish, insects, plants and planets, squiggly lines and biomorphic shapes animated the apartment. It was the most astonishing and frightening thing a grown son could behold walking into his mother's home. Blue asks his mom if she's feeling manicky. She says she's feeling absolutely marvelous. He opens her fridge and sees a bag of coffee grinds, a can of pineapple juice, and a lot of white light. He writes, after my initial shock, I had to stop and marvel at this woman. To this day, I can think of no work of art whose image is as etched in my memory as my mother's wall-to-wall masterpiece. I remember thinking, she's the real McCoy, my mother. She doesn't make art for the sake of making money or getting reviews or getting tenure. She doesn't even call what she does art. While my mother prepared tea for me in the kitchen, I went to the bathroom and sat on the toilet with the door open just a crack, so I could peek at her doodled phantasmagoria. With a tap of my foot, I opened the door all the way, and then I saw it. This seemingly cacophonous drawing wasn't just a random collection of marks. From where I was sitting, I could see that the long wall of the living room formed one very large, very round face, with two eyes a nose a smiling mouth a chin it was the big round face of a man I pulled up my pants and stood in the bathroom doorway looking out it wasn't just a generic face it was the spitting image of hoss cartwright the rotund son on the 1960s television western bonanza I sat back down on the toilet and tried to remember the actor's name. I closed my eyes and recalled, recalled the opening sequence. I wondered. Could Dan Blocker be my father? He wasn't like his swashbuckling brother, Michael Landon, adored by everyone, or their strappingly handsome father, Lorne Green. Now, he was a father. Hoss was a brother, a son, a supporting actor, an oafish kind of guy, not a father. Dan Blocker, fuck. Well, he's somebody, a face, a perfectly fine face. I'll take it. Blue goes on to ask his mother if she knew Dan Blocker, but she acted like she didn't even remember the TV show, though they used to watch it together on Sunday nights. After seeing her so waif-like, he worries that he will visit his mother one day and not be able to find her. She'd be somewhere lost inside her apartment, lost to him anyway, or to the rest of the world. The Doodler is a novel about a lifelong doodler who loses all touch with reality and falls inside one of her doodles. All My Men Were Musicians and I'm Tone Deaf is a collection of stories commissioned by a lesbian couple with a small press who, despite their separatist proclivities, adore the way Blue writes women characters. And he told me he was really proud of that. Soon after the birth of their daughter, Blue and his wife akancha moved to the Lower East Side, to a Lower East Side walk up, from their Lower East Side walk up to a split level rental house on Long Island. Riddled with mixed feelings about living in the suburbs, Blue writes Precipice, a novel set at the end of a cul-de-sac on Beaver Point Lane in the suburban community of Riverbrook Hills, a place with no river or brook or hills or beavers at a time in the not-so-distant future when oil supplies have peaked in the Middle East, causing chaos in American suburbs. Buy this book or we'll kill you is a novel about a couple of academics who after two years of trying to get their tome on the oral history of garbage published attempt to blackmail an editor at a major publishing house. Written originally as a goof, buy this book or we'll kill you would most likely have fallen to the obscure fate of Blue's previous books if it weren't for an independent filmmaker making a film out of it. The movie which bore very little resemblance to the book became a blockbuster. On the coattails of the hit movie, Blue's book became a bestseller, his first. Blue takes a year off from teaching. For the first time in his life, he could sit in a chair and write for months on end like he'd always dreamed of, except for one thing. He couldn't sit, he couldn't stand, he couldn't do anything due to a debilitating disc disease in his back that finally caught up with him. Tortured Souls, a manifesto written from the vantage point of a middle-aged pair of pissed-off feet. (laughs) <laughs> Blue's old friend, Sidney Lewiston, comes to visit. Then in his 80s, Sidney, a lifelong communist, reveals he's having second thoughts about his devotion to redness. Blue tapes Sidney for an oral history, but he can't manage the editing and writing from his bed. In desperation, he calls Monica Modolo, an MFA writing student from the college, to help him with the book. Blue tries every conceivable kind of therapy to help heal his back, but he has to face reality. He's a full-time writer in a part-time body. He gives himself permission not to be so ambitious. With Monica's assistance, he comes out with a self-help book under the name Dr. Sky Jacobs, Yes I Can't, is marketed as a slacker's guide to not accomplishing your full potential. With Monica's help, Blue writes, peace is just another word for nothing left to kill, based on stories told to him by Gulf War veterans. Blue's 11-year-old daughter, Frida, is diagnosed with a rare and potentially deadly blood disease known as ITP. He will do anything to make sure Frida gets the best medical care in the world, and that takes money. He works on replacing the esoteric writing categories in his mind with more commercially viable ones that correlate to categories that actually exist in bookstores. With Monica's help, he writes his first book in a science fiction genre about genetically engineered hermaphrodites, which in time become the gender of choice for prospective parents. The Boomerang Case is a legal thriller about a man who is on such a litigation rampage he finally sues himself. The condition of Blue's daughter is like a roller coaster. He and Akansha want to take Frida to an Ayurvedic doctor in India, which their health insurance refuses to cover. In need of cash, Blue, as Dr. Sky Jacobs, comes out with a book about angst-ridden love relationships titled, I Could Love You So Much If Only I Didn't Hate You. It's a spectacular hit. Blue hires a team of writing assistants to help out churn, churn, churn out more of these books. He writes the outlines in first and last chapters. They work the insides. Blue does the rewrites. The second book in the series, "I could love you so much if only you, If only you didn't hate me." Also a hit is followed by I could love you so much if only I didn't hate myself, followed by, if only you were who you said you were, if only you weren't like my mother, if only you would talk to me, if only you would leave me alone, if only I had a happy childhood, if only you didn't need me, if only you would let me touch you, if only you would have my baby, if only you were more like me, if only you would get a job, but all you think about is work. I could love you so much if only you weren't and narcissistic bitch. If only I was who I thought I was. If only I deserved you. If only I could leave you. And the last book in the series, I could love you so much. If only I could meet you. So right there, you have 19 of the 101 books. With help from his writing factory, Blue comes out with anywhere between 5 and 8 books a year. His first murder mystery, A Damn Good Plot, Followed by one good plot deserves another. Followed by Plotsville, based on a movie made from the damn good plot books. See, he's got a thing going with movies. Blue's daughter, Frida, had a heart that went out to all living creatures, especially animals with missing eyes or limbs. Blue had to make sure to drive around puddles in the road so he didn't kill any frogs hanging out in their frog jacuzzis. Injured birds, turtles, moths, dogs, snakes, cats needed to be cared for at least until they got better. And then somehow they would tell Frida if they wanted to rejoin their family in the wild or become a permanent part of her family. Puss Dude and other curiously adorable and disturbing cat stories is Blue's singular foray into pet lit. After three years going to scores of doctors, dozens of labs, too many clinics, treatment centers, and hospitals, Frida became an expert at waiting her turn, but impatient when it came to being bullshitted. In No More Mrs. Nice Guy, Confessions of a Nice Catholic Girl, a dutiful God-fearing daughter, wife, mother, and church member is diagnosed with cancer. She soon discovers her own voice through the transformative power of hard-earned rage. In this short video clip, Paula Martinez... uh, in a, uh, we meet Paula Mar- Martinez in a doctor's waiting room performed here by Caridad de la Luz, a.k.a. La Bruja. Oops.
2: What happened? I'm reading this bestseller by this famous psychologist guy about the power of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. He's pounding his thesis like a 12-inch nail into my head, same point, over and over. The really annoying thing is, he's leaving out a tremendous amount of information and his reasoning is fuzzy. I can write his whole book in a single paragraph, in one sentence, why even bother? I pick up a three month old magazine, the cover article is written by the same famous psychologist guy. I've been waiting 45 minutes. I woke up to the receptionist and say, I understand Dr. Crenshaw is a very important man and that his time is extremely valuable and mine is worth nothing. But can you give me a clue how much more of it I have to waste before I get called in to wait in yet another room and have to sit there half naked, feeling vulnerable and humiliated for God only knows how long? (laughs) I don't really say that. (laughs) I don't even get up from the chair. I just sit there staring at the waiting room paintings, the large sunset watercolor, the lighthouse painting with the white caps lapping over the rocks, the big eyed puppy dog prints. If this doctor is as good in medicine as he is in his taste in art, I am in serious, serious trouble. After waiting 30 more minutes, I do get up and talk to the receptionist. Excuse me, ma'am. How much longer do you think? My appointment was for two o'clock and it's a quarter past three. I realize I'm just a patient, but I'm really not that patient a patient when it comes to waiting in waiting rooms for hours after the time of my appointment. (laughs) Someone behind me starts clapping. Two or three others join in. I turn around, all nine people are applauding my little tirade. Two of them are standing. Three more stand to join them. I'm getting a standing ovation for being a pushy asshole. I'm not really sure it's a good thing reinforcing this kind of behavior. Less than a minute later, I get called in to see the doctor. Prior to six months ago, I wouldn't have dared speak to anyone like that. I would have simply waited for however long and felt grateful that my name was called at all. I've lived most of my life like a quiet little mouse. Sister Lucia always told us not to complain. Life is hard, she'd often say with the grim expression of a life filled with joyless obligations. Have patience in this life and you'll reap the benefits in heaven. Father Michael, Sister Henrietta, and Sister Agnes had interior dispositions, though they all praised the virtues of keeping quiet, especially if you were a girl. For the next quarter century, I pretty much kept my thoughts private. Then, six months ago, I found a lump under my arm. Waiting became a matter of life and death, waiting for my name to be called, waiting for interminable weekends to turn into Monday when the doctor could look at the lab results, waiting for the phone to ring, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, till finally I'm told to come into the office. I come in. My primary care doctor asks me which I would like to hear first, the good news or the bad news. I say, I'm not a child, just tell me. He says, okay, the bad news is you have cancer. The good news is it's stage one and we have an excellent record at eradicating this particular cancer when we catch it this early in the game. A week later, a different doctor, about to inject me with a very large needle says, would you prefer I sing to you or tell you a joke? Just give me the goddamn needle and get it over with. Was that a same thing to say to a man with a needle in his hands? You wouldn't think so, but it was a painless shot and that doctor has treated me with the utmost respect ever since. No songs, no jokes, no talking to me like I'm a child. Now that I'm violating every rule I ever learned about being a nice Catholic girl, my life is taking a turn for the better. After I told my boss he could take his lousy executive assistant position and shove it up his flat, greedy ass,
1: he offered to give
2: me a raise. I quit anyway. I tried the same thing with my husband, but he's being so nice to me now. I'm not about to give up the special treatment. We'll see how long it lasts.
0: That was La Bruja. Blue starts going into big box bookstores lying down in particular aisles till an idea for a book in that genre comes to him. One time he got an idea for a book in the religion section and when he got up he saw that the human sexuality aisle was right behind him. End times. The story of a sex addict turned evangelical fanatic. Blue ends up doing all kinds of hybrid genre books, like his first children's book, How Bad People Go Bye-Bye, a pull-out pop-up book on the history of capital punishment. Let's take a look at some of these pages here. Uh, In early times, when the man did wrong, you pull the tab. We threw some stones till he was gone. Then, if someone killed or stole, On the guillotine, their head would roll. Nowadays, a prick in the arm and the bad man can do no harm. How Bad People Go Bye-Bye was a flop until the cable news programs turned it into a controversy. Within two months, the book was banned in school libraries in every state of the union except Massachusetts, and it became the top-grossing children's book of 1998 and Blue's first number one bestseller. During this time, Blue was accused of being a pornographer, a propagandist for both sides of the issue, a sly manipulator of the media, a truth teller, the devil's accomplice and God's accomplice. Dr. Sky Jacobs' Becoming Your Own Worst Enemy is not about hating yourself, it's about being in control. Only after you embrace your own loathsome, rock bottom, mean, hypocritical, low life self can you deny others the opportunity of bringing you down. So it's really a very positive book. By this time, Blue's daughter, Frida, is healthy. His own back pain is under control, but he's grown accustomed to working with a team of assistants. After a while, almost everything Blue does in his creative and professional life is the result of group think. His problems become the group's problems. Outsourcing grandma takes place in a globalized world where made in America could be made in the Philippines or China. Grandma could be an 11-year-old girl with knitting needles and a successful entrepreneur could be a ticking time bomb plagued by child labor law activists. In a dream, blue sails through the air, kind of like skydiving, looking down at the earth. As I look closer, he writes, what I thought were mountains, rivers, and villages are actually the terrain of people's lives, a topography of choices and chances, opportunities and accidents, forks that lead to easy or hard roads, tributaries of regrets and satisfactions. In Life Maps, Dr. Sky Jacobs serves up 101 maps and diagrams that help you figure out where you're going, where you've been, how you got there, and if necessary, how to change direction. Another hybrid genre work, a series of culinary murder mysteries. A bell tolls for Mr. Frosty. The night crustaceans screamed. Imagine if we could hear the screams of lobsters as we boiled them alive. Blue helps arrange a gallery exhibition of his mother's art, which gets a very positive review in the New York Times, three paragraphs of which is devoted to her mental illness and to the long tradition of madness in art and art. The show sells out, but Blue feels terrible seeing his mother contextualized in this way. As more and more of Blue's books create controversies, he too experiences what it's like to be personified as an issue and considers his own culpability inventing characters and representing real people to highlight causes. He does many readings of this extended rant at live poetry clubs, becomes a fledgling Performance poet and also enjoys the interpretation of I Am Not an Issue by other performers. Here is an excerpt of the music group Betty doing a live reading of the poem.
1: If I was downsized, right sized, sized up, and spit out, If I'm a single mother, work in a sweatshop, I'm a limo driver, or a refuse collector, or a carpenter, or teacher, and I belong to a union that my employer refuses to meet with. If I have no union and no health insurance and no doctor to speak of. If I bring my children to the hospital emergency room when they're sick. If I can't find a job in my field and I'm working as a cashier at the supermarket, handing you a credit card receipt for your signature. If you know me only from a picture on TV or from the side of a milk carton. If you heard talk of me on. radio. If I'm the child of a broken home. If I'm an interracial child or of so much mixed blood you can't even begin to define who or what I am. If I was abused by a parent or a teacher or a priest. If I had to foreclose on my home or my building was condemned. If, if I, I once was in a, a gang convicted, convicted falsely, falsely of a crime. crime or I did the deed and I'm paying for it. If, if I, I got, got caught in the crosshairs of the, the war on drugs or the war on, or the war on terror, terror or the war on, on crime. crime. If I'm serving 15 to life. If I'm on death row in a state that does the deed. If I'm on death row in a state that hasn't done the deed in a long time, but might at any time. If
2: I'm in a juvenile detention center, if I'm on parole and you take a chance on me, give me a job despite my having a record, remember, I'm not an issue.
1: I, I, I am not an issue. I am not your three-dimensional, walking, talking, poster child. I am not your three-dimensional, walking, talking, poster child. Lord, thank you very much. I am not your
2: issue. If I am, if I am, if I am, am. If I am, if I am, if I
1: am, am dyslexic or have ADD or HDD or am special ed material. material if I'm under or overachieving if I'm in a failing or sought after school if I was never able to go to college if I wrote my doctoral thesis on an issue of interest only to my thesis advisor if I am if I am if I am am. if, if I am if
2: I am, I am if I am, am, am if I suffer from post-traumatic stress or some other syndrome. syndrome if I had a family member killed on 9-11 or on flight 800 or in Oklahoma or in Afghanistan or Lebanon, or Sudan, or the Gulf War. If I am, if I am, if I am,
0: am. If I am, if I am, if I am, if I am. I am, I am. It's an excerpt of Betty doing that piece. After September 11, 2001, Dr. Sky Jacobs writes a modest proposal for keeping the nation secure. The final point in his 35... Pro- Point proposal involves rounding up and penning in all men. After all, if you took all the men off the streets, the world would be a safer place. <laughs> the poetry role has a 1,001 two-ply toilet paper poems, guaranteed non-toxic and biodegradable. Let's see a couple of these poems. Preemptive strike. War begets democracy like a blowtorch waters the lawn. Wipe, sitting here, reading, lost for a moment in eternity. At the conference, inside, academicians pontificated, outside, pigeons encircled the square. Disheartened and disturbed by the direction he sees his country going in, Blue becomes a blogger, an omnipresent iconoclastic pundit on the cable shows, also writes downloadable pamphlet-length essays, which become fodder for the chattering punditocracy. U.S. versus Them, or Us versus Them, is a coloring book celebrating U.S. military interventions since World War II. It may not always make a pretty picture. But But according to the jacket copy, it's time for Americans to face the -the on-the-ground sacrifices so many people have made in order to bring democracy and freedom to all parts of the globe. While doing research for an historical book on enclosure walls, Blue became fascinated with the field of scholarship known as Bible science. The New New Testament is a fully annotated Bible replete with the latest scientific proof of God, Jesus, and many biblical stories. Here it is packaged in a deluxe edition marketed as matters of fact, which includes actual dirt from Bethlehem, DNA certificates, and facsimiles of bone, shroud, and other sacred artifacts. Blue has a growing sense that he's living in a world where books are not as central to people's lives as they once were. That reading deep, long form contemplative reading is very likely an endangered species. Circa 2005 Tell a Vision is a book for people who can't Stand reading but have an image to maintain. Maybe you're the head of the family or the president of a corporation or country. You don't only hate reading, you're addicted to watching TV. Don't despair, just pull out a copy of Tell-A-Vision, a a handsomely produced hardcover book written by the best-selling author Blue Mobley. Crack open the cover and pretend to read while watching your favorite television programs. Blue officially quits writing and turns his writing factory into a laboratory for exploring and entrepreneuring the legacy and future of the book. No more content creation, they zero in on the form and develop a line of books for boys that drive, roll, chug-a-lug, and fly. They still may not be reading, but at least parents know their sons are playing with books. (laughs) a line of book clothes and accessories that keep you looking language savvy from head to toe quite the entrepreneur by now, Blue comes out with a line of book lamps called illuminated manuscripts we used to sit around the campfire telling stories, then books were the thing, the book The campfire, both storytelling relics from bygone eras that can light up a table and give you a warm literary feeling. Book lamps with big ideas that reflect the nature of inspiration that take us beyond ourselves, that remind us of texts we used to dive into and swim around in, the ultimate coffee table book, all technologies of communication lighting up your living room. Without giving away too much of how and why Blue Land's in prison, I will tell you that he comes out of writing retirement to write an expose, hello, on presidential indiscretions as told to him by a former White House cleaning person. Under the rug ends up getting Blue into more trouble than it does the president it was intended to topple. Meanwhile, Blue pursues a thought. If people won't come to the books, maybe the books should come to the people. Working with his group and a team of engineers from MIT, he constructs large scale books, leaves of text that fly over town and country. They are incredible spectacles that lift the spirits of people throughout North America and lose blue a ton of money. In prison, Blue starts a literacy program as a means of survival. He grows to love the men in his prison writing workshops and admire the heart, soul, and wisdom he finds in their writings. Uh, A Life in Books reprints the section on scars. And the last thing I'll share with you tonight is a short prose poem from Cell by Cell by Blue's, Blue's fellow inmate Chuck Zimmer titled, Her Eyes. The mother of the boy, her eyes... The boy I hit that night, her eyes are my scars. Didn't even know I hit anything at first. Had some beers after the softball game. No more than any Saturday night, five pitchers between four guys. It was so hot that night, not just hot, humid. I remember the first cold mug feeling so good, tasted like water. By the fifth mug, it was just starting to taste like beer. Big athletic guy like me, I always thought, metabolism like mine always thought I drove better after five or six beers no kidding smoother on the steering wheel breezier making turns less in a hurry singing to my favorite tape nice guy I always thought volunteered with big brothers have a kid of my own used to be his hero his eyes to the world it could have been him that night but it was her boy rolling out from the curb on his skateboard. Still some light in the sky. Should have seen him, should have slowed down for the stop sign 20 yards ahead. Her eyes, her devastation, her boy. I remember hearing a dull thud. That's all I ever knew of him, a dull thud. He was dead in an instant, didn't know what hit him. I replay it in my mind a million times, a million rewinds. A boy taken down in an instant could have been my boy. She wrote me back, said she can never forgive. Do I have any idea, any idea what I took? She can never forgive what I did, but her faith allows her. Her faith instructs her to forgive the person. I forgive you, she wrote, but not what you did. Her faith. Her eyes, her boy, my boy, her devastation, my scars. During his incarceration, whoops, uh, Blue weans himself off his addiction to writing books, becomes a better human being, gives up writing once again, and takes up painting." This is one of his paintings from prison. And that's my presentation for you tonight. Thank you very much.